Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello and welcome to Condensed Histories, the podcast that takes pop culture and reveals the real history underneath. I'm your host, Jem Daduchu, and what I'm doing this time round well, I'm not quite sure what Greg's going to call this one, but it's about chalky bars and chocolate and those delicious treats and things like that. And I'm basically going to tell you the history of chocolate. And I'm also going to tell the story of confectionery, of those sweets or candies, if you like, but specifically the more chocolatey variety through three men who are to the world of chocolates and candy and treats kind of thing what michelangelo and leonardo da vinci are to renaissance painting without these three particular men from three different countries who were kind of around at different times even they, they never met each other and doing the basic mathematics while i guess there was a little bit of overlap in terms of ages basically somebody was a small child while somebody else was very old so actually you're getting different people telling you the story of give or take about 150 years of western history through the world of confectionery which is kind of mind-blowing when you think about it so let's play a little game shall we because i've done a bit of research on this and i'm actually going to start with the person in the middle of the three in terms of timeline but you'll understand why in a minute so in your head, if I was to say to you, what is the world's biggest selling chocolate bar, candy bar, what do you think that is? It's a brand, obviously, we're talking about. It's not something that your mother makes, although that might be the best one ever made. I'm talking about something that you could go into a convenience store or go into a bodega or go into the gas station or petrol station or supermarket and it's pretty much guaranteed to be sitting there and this is something interesting because actually europe does have a number of different candy bars to america and well america just has so many of these things so this is something that you will be able to buy be it in let's pick the three countries i'm going to be talking about later italy america and britain care to take a guess now before i did the research i would have guessed the Mars bar, which is indeed called the same thing in all three of these countries. Except it isn't. The number one 
is the Snickers bar. You know, you're a right pain when you're hungry. Here, have a Snickers, will you? Now, immediately, I can tell you a little bit of history about that if you are relatively young in Britain, or indeed if you come from any other country. Because, interestingly, while it's known as Snickers in Italy and Snickers in America, it wasn't launched as Snickers in Britain. It was launched as Marathon. So when I was a small child, I might want to get a Marathon bar, although I preferred the Mars bar. So the reality is, why was it called Marathon in Britain? And the reason I'm saying it's all like younger people is because, and I hate to do this to people listening, it changed its name from Marathon to Snickers in Britain today in the 21st century. You absolutely asked for a Snickers bar. Nobody would know what you meant if you asked for a Marathon. But it changed its name in 1990. So you have to be over 33 years old at the time of recording. And indeed, older than that to appreciate the names of things. So you're going to have to be pushing 40 for you to remember the name Marathon rather than Snickers. Now, why? Why did Britain have this slight change of branding? After all, something like Coca-Cola is called Coca-Cola around the world, whether or not that's a necessarily easy word to say in, let's say, Beijing or in, I don't know, Malaysia, Kuala Lumpur, something like that. So, you know, it, it, it takes no account of how easy it is to say in local languages. But for some reason, this English language word, Snickers, was changed to Marathon in the UK. And I can answer it, and it's very quaint because the company behind the Snickers bar, which is actually the Mars Corporation, you know, the ones who also do Mars bars, they were worried that in Britain, well, it sounded like knickers. <laughs> knickers are slang for ladies' undergarments. <laughs> and the British being British and polite, oh, they couldn't possibly deal with something that sounded like female underwear particularly aimed at children oh well nobody think of the children oh the swooning etc <laughs> which does mean that basically the mars company thought that by 1990 we were now crude enough to deal with the slang term for ladies underwear there we go that's the truth of the matter which is already a fun little fact to throw in there so I'm going to start off with the Mars Company, founded by a gentleman called Franklin Mars. That's his real surname. It wasn't made up or anything. And he kind of learnt how to make confectionery from his mother. He was born in 1883 and he launched his company in 1911. For a while it was in one state and then it moved to another state and that's kind of where it's been ever since. So it's one of these things like my Warner Brothers 100 years is kind of like, well, depends when you want to start the company, depending on locations and setups and so on and so forth. But basically, Mars can trace its heritage back more than 100 years to 1911, when he was basically in his late 20s. So that's really impressive for a guy to be setting up a company like that. But here's the thing. Actually, the reality was the Snickers bar was not the first one that he invented. No, that was Milky Way. But Spottle Blue, he took the Milky Way. He's looking for a chocolate treat, fluffy and light. Cause he knows it won't spoil his appetite. Which is something that we get in both UK and also in America and other countries as well. So that 1923, we get Milky Way bar. Then in 1930, we get the Snickers bar. And then in 1932, we get the Mars bar. Now, for the record, also... This is a company that has either 
bought or created other things like M&Ms, Twix, Skittles, and Bounty. Okay, just to name a few. What's interesting is the Mars Corporation, which it is now, basically makes its money through confectionery, pet food, and animal care. And the most recent things that I could find in terms of overall value of the company was worth $45 billion. That's a lot of Mars bars that you've got to sell to get there. Also, they have like a sort of savoury area. Dolmio is also courtesy of them. And Ben's Rice used to be called Uncle Ben's, but that's seen very much as playing into some very poor racial stereotypes. So obviously a corporation is not going to do that. So now it's Ben's Rice. So that's also the Mars company. And then, as I said, confectionery, pet food and animal care. So I do also feel obliged to say that the people who brought you the Mars bar also brings you whiskers, cat food and iams as well, which I, I don't know about you, but I assume iams is such an unusual name that that was a German company. So that is basically feeding things on two legs and four legs and i'm gonna guess it's more nutritional for the four-legged variety of, of things out there but you can see that if somebody is creating the milky way the snickers the mars bar that would be the equivalent the confectionery equivalent of something like michelangelo's david and the sistine chapel you know these have become staples that are around the world if you're feeling a little bit peckish then you might want to grab one of those bits of confectionery but the thing is it was in no way in america that started all this stuff so going back to i said i've got this trifecta of individuals i'm going to talk about a guy who's again surname what's interesting about all of these people is all of them their surnames you will associate with with confectionery sweet candy call it whatever you want okay because this guy's name was john cadbury yeah, Cadbury's. And what's interesting is he was a Quaker. Now, not to go into the whole sort of like complexities of the differences on, on you know, Quakers and Baptists and Protestants and so on and so forth. But basically, it's an austere version of Christianity. You're not allowed to drink if you're a Quaker. Also, you're technically not meant to listen to music. So basically, if you want something a bit different from just drinking water or milk, well, chocolate chocolate there's nothing in the bible saying you can't have chocolate and again i'll go on to why that is when i get into the other history bit and so actually a lot of quakers got involved in things like confectionery because in essence i can still have fun and what human being doesn't want to have fun but still be true to my faith which is important to a lot of people so to give you an idea basically john cabri was was born in the very early 1800s and sort of what was sadly passed away by the time you get to the birth of franklin mars so it's like i said these two will never meet each other but as the cabris company evolved obviously it was bought i say obviously it was bought by american company craft foods probably at the time of recording 10 years ago would be my guess i could be off a little bit but it's relatively recently but cabris for well over a century was a global brand that sort of spread its influence obviously courtesy of things like the british empire but it was trying to give people different types of chocolate and i will the reason why i'm mentioning cabris is because i will be coming back to them because they used to do a very good job on the history of chocolate so that's where i learned that oh okay chocolate isn't just artificially created you eat a mouthful of Skittles and you do know that those things don't grow on trees, for example. So like every kid, I don't necessarily think about where chocolate comes from, but chocolate has a very 
terrible and depressing history, unfortunately. It's also got a complicated history as well. So we'll come back to that. So we've got the Cabris Company, but if you look on a map, you'll find that one of the biggest tourist attractions in the middle of England, the Midlands, is Cabri World. And it's not in Birmingham. It's just on the edges of Birmingham. Why is that? It's in a place called Bourneville. And that might be familiar to some people because there's actually a brand of Cadbury's chocolate called Bourneville. And that's because the Cadbury family built a model town. A lot of this was happening during the Industrial Revolution, where people recognised that these people, a hundred years earlier, had all been peasants working in the fields where they had fresh air and they could kind of in control of their own destinies. They were tied to the land for sure, but, you know, they weren't having to work factory hours and their children weren't dying in machinery. So there were a number of people, well-meaning individuals, who decided to set up entire towns around the factory. Now, there are obviously implications to that, like, well, if you lose your job, does that mean you also lose your home? But the point is, these homes were clean. They were well-built the children there were schools nearby so the children could be educated there was obviously a church because this is a quaker family so we're looking after your soul your education your welfare your physical welfare and your home life basically if you were in let's say the year 1900 and you were a worker in the cabris factory and had a home in Bourneville, you weren't sitting there going, oh, well, this is terrible. Oh, you know, this is capitalism run out of control. Oh, you know, they control my life completely. No, you're sitting there going, I'm lucky. I've got indoor plumbing. The roof over my head isn't leaking. There was a huge amount of care in keeping the workers healthy. Bourneville then was a place that people aspired to live in rather than a place that was a problem, if you like. So, what we've got there, little slice of industrial history, social history, and also the history of an organization that ran for many, many years and then ended up being bought out by a larger company, which is kind of how the things work out. I was also surprised during my tour of Cabri World. I've been there a couple of times myself. Again, more on that later, tying into the overarching history of chocolate. The thing that amused me was I discovered that Cadbury's Cream Eggs, which is one of my favourites. Hopefully you've liked one of those. How will you eat yours? It is a chocolate shell, which looks like a small egg, about the same size as a medium-sized egg. And inside there is a, basically a sugar fondant, which is white and yellow, so it looks like it's got yolk in it. I was really surprised to find out that came out in the 1920s. It looks kind of too technical. It looks like the sort of thing that probably was created in the 1980s but no i was completely wrong so it's strange to think that somebody like al capone could have eaten a cadbury's cream egg although they weren't available in america but anyway so there we go i've talked about franklin mars and the mars organization and you know imagine a world without things like milky way snickers mars bar m&ms twix skittles bounty bar Oh my goodness, you know, the, the world would be a poorer place. And then all of, the course, the Cadbury's products as well. Cadbury's Flake, etc. Whisper, I've mentioned the cream eggs and dairy milk. So the key thing is there with John Cadbury, he recognised that chocolate in the early 1800s was really quite expensive. So he needed to mix something in with it, to dilute it, if you like, to make it more affordable. He wanted everybody to have a little chunk of sweety goodness basically which will be very similar to our third person that we'll be talking about the italian guy so the thing is the easiest thing to do was to cut the cocoa milk with milk milk and that's how you get cadbury's dairy milk now what i found interesting is when britain was part of the eu there was enough 
dairy inside Cadbury's dairy milk that it could, according to EU food legislation, be classified as a cheese. Which makes me smile, because there we go. It's definitely the sweetest cheese. It is, obviously, compared to other chocolates, there used to be the advert, a glass and a half of milk goodness. In other words, boy, are we pouring a lot of milk into this chocolate paste to thin it out, in essence. It's not the best chocolate in the world, but it's definitely better than Hershey's, okay? I'm just putting this out there right now. Mars is the vastly superior confectioner to Hershey's. I know they're in Pennsylvania. Apologies to Hershey's, but them's the facts, okay? And certainly compared to any other European manufacturer of confectionery, no Hershey's. It's just sugar and really, really diluted chocolate, and it doesn't even taste like chocolate. And your Hershey kisses, no, I will not kiss them. <laughs> of course you realise this means war. Bet you didn't realise I was going to have strong feelings in this particular episode. But anyway, let's move on. To our third person. Our third person is Michelle Ferrero. Aha, I hear you say. I think I know where this is going. Now, what's interesting is Michel was born in the 1920s. And so he was living in Italy throughout World War II. This was a country that really was torn apart by that. And let's not get too technical into it, but Italy was one of those countries that unfortunately was under a fascist dictatorship at the beginning. And actually, Italy ended up changing sides once Mussolini was overthrown. And so you had borderline civil war going on in there as well as the Allies landing in places like Anzio, etc. So Italy was quite heavily fought over. You get the very famous almost siege of Monte Cassino and so on and so forth. The point here is he lived through all of that. And he was a young man in his 20s. I guess a bit like Franklin Mars, but, you know, far more war-torn, if you like. And so after the war, he created his company, Ferrero, named after himself, and he wanted to just come up with something to take people's minds off the incredibly grim reality of post-war Europe. Because there was rubble everywhere, there was poverty everywhere, there was still unexploded munitions everywhere. People were coming back from the war, these men who had been basically blasted to pieces, you know, even if they were you know, physically fit, they were sort of mentally shattered as well. And of course, many men came home with serious injuries and wounds. So that's the world that Michel Ferrero grew up in. And in essence, he the first thing he did was create this sort of cherry-based candy. It was sort of like a chocolate ball, but had like a cherry liqueur in the middle of it. It's still available. It's not, you know, the biggest seller out there. And it's something that I'm going to lose everybody if I go talk about too much. But that was his first start. In other words, the idea was, look, just for five minutes, I'm going to put a smile on your face, which after World War II, I think that's a very noble cause. So what did he do? Well, he actually founded his company in 1947. And here's the thing. It will come as no surprise that Mr. Ferrero invented Ferrero Rocher. Now, I happen to have a friend who used to work in the diplomatic corps. In fact, I have another friend who married a diplomat. And Ferrero Rocher is not a thing in diplomatic balls, except after the ad. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Burts came out, it started turning into a joke, and so when somebody was getting a posting, maybe their friend might give them a tray of Ferrero Rocher as they headed off to wherever, going, you'll need these. But no, just to sort of shatter anybody's illusions, if you remember that late 80s, early 90s advert of basically Ferrero Rocher being handed out at some exotic diplomatic ball. No, that that was not a thing. But anyway, the thing about Ferrero Rocher, if you don't know what it is, so if you're American, I don't know how well known Ferrero Rocher is. It's these small balls of wafer with nuts and chocolate covering the outside. And then inside there's like a chocolate fondant. Now that chocolate fondant, as a child, I thought that tastes like something. And I wasn't wrong because whereas Michel Ferrero invented the Ferrero Rocher, he also invented Nutella, and a Ferrero Rocher is full of Nutella. Nutella is a chocolate paste. The idea is you're meant to put it on toast. If you've got a really cool mum, basically, that that's how you get Nutella. And just as John Cadbury cut chocolate with milk, so too Nutella gets cut with hazelnuts. It's got a very distinctive taste to it. You can taste the hazelnuts in it. And actually, again, doing the research, about 20% of the world's hazelnut crop every year goes to the Ferrero company so that they can make Nutella and Ferrero Rocher. That's how important it is to, I guess, the hazelnut community and also to the Ferrero Rocher slash Nutella community. I actually have a son who's trying to bulk out a little bit, and so we've got him some tubs of Nutella, 
other spreads are available. Again, I feel it, this is crime. I'm talking about all these massive multi-billion dollar organizations and I'm getting not one penny for it. So, hey, look, shout out to Cadbury's, to Kraft, to Mars, to Ferrero. If anybody wants to say thank you to me, just DM me. I'm at Gem Deducci on Twitter. I would love to have some of your products. Uh, thank you very much. I've already talked about how much I enjoy all of them, okay? Well, not quite all of them, but anyway, you get the idea. So, yeah, hey, but that's just also to anybody who wants to say what you think of it. This is a slightly different episode because hopefully you would agree the pop culture we tend to think of as like movies and TV and music, etc. But those adverts, you know, the little tagline when I was sort of growing up about Mars, for example, a Mars a day helps you work, rest and play. Most people can remember little jingles and little adverts and things like that about various different Cadbury's Cadbury's caramel with the bunny that was kind of a little bit sexy you know there's just so many different adverts which are part of pop culture all of these things are associated with coolness or energy or things like that obviously they're not health foods and make sure you brush your teeth twice a day so Ferrero I'm gonna say out of Cadbury's and Mars Michelle Ferrero could potentially be the greatest of them all because whereas Franklin invented Milkweight Snickers and Mars Bar, I don't believe he was involved in the creation of the Twix. I could be wrong on that, but definitely he wasn't involved in the likes of M&Ms and Skittles, for example. But Michelle, not only did he have those cherry liqueur things, which we can forget about, but come on, we're talking about the inventor of Nutella, Ferrero Rocher, Kinder Eggs, and Tic Tacs. And those are actually quite different types of confection, hopefully you would agree. You know, the, the Kinder Eggs, yes, they got chocolate, but it's that white chocolate inside. And then there's the treat, the toy in the middle. That makes it so unique. And obviously any of the other kind of Kinder bars and things like that all come from the same company. Then you've got something like Ferro Rocher, which is obviously very much a chocolate-based product, but quite a complex production line you know you got to have the fondant in the middle you got to have the wafer casing it's then got to be covered in this light nut and chocolate coating outside it as well and then tic tacs well i mean principally they're mints you know they got nothing to do with chocolate whatsoever they're little sugar flavored drops in those sort of easy to hold containers and things like that and to give you an idea what's interesting is the mars family still owns the mars company and as I said, Cadbury's was owned by the Cadbury's family for many, many years, but then eventually got sold to Kraft. And then the Ferrero family do indeed still own Ferrero. And what's interesting is the patriarch of the family is the richest person in Italy. That's how much that company is worth. You might think it would be the owners of Ferrari or whatever, but no, it's all about chocolates because let's face it, who doesn't want a lovely chocolatey treat? So all of these companies are doing a great business. And like I say, you might want to check out some of their products. I guess they are huge rivals to each other. And I haven't even mentioned the likes of Nestle, for example. And I did dunk on Hershey's there. But yeah, I'm sorry, your chocolate isn't very good. And there are other products out there as well, like Reese's Pieces, which interestingly, I love this fact when Spielberg was making E.T., which he always thought would be a very small movie. It is a movie fundamentally about a family dealing with divorce and just having this alien in there as kind of an analogy or metaphor, if you like, of like trying to sort of move on with your life. Yes, there is no father in E.T., and you can see that the mum's struggling. You know, she's got a relatively young family that she's having to deal with. So 
Spielberg never thought it would blow up the way it did. At the time when it came out, it was the single biggest grossing movie in movie history. Well done, Steven Spielberg. But he went out, he, he had to come up with an idea of like, what would a kid offer an alien? And so he went to M&M's. And M&M's, I mean, by then, Steven Spielberg had made Jaws, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. He'd made Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, or just Raiders of the Lost Ark, as it was called at the time. You know, the guy was making some pretty big movies. Why? Did M&M's turn them down? So he went to a smaller company, a kind of a semi-competitor to M&M's, and went to Reese's Pieces, and that basically saved the company. They were close to failing before they got the deal there, and suddenly everybody wanted Reese's Pieces, and I remember my American grandfather sent me, because you could not buy them in Britain in the 1980s. I got a bag of Reese's Pieces, and I took them to school. I was the single most popular child for that whole week then. I was the Reese's Pieces kid. So... There we go. Hopefully, as we've gone through all of this, you can see there's a lot of history in that humble chocolate bar that you're going to now shove in your face. I'm kind of hoping that this episode's making you a bit hungry for something really not nutritious, okay? You know, look, please, eat an apple. Don't forget your five a day. Smoothies are great. Yada, yada, yada. But sometimes, just sometimes, there is no substitute to just you know, eating a fat burger or wolfing down a donut or in this case chomping on a delicious chocolate bar okay do it all the time that's going to be very unhealthy for you but a treat every now and then why not go for it unless of course you're diabetic in which case be very careful about this or indeed allergic to nuts in any way because of course snickers the biggest selling chocolate bar in the world obviously contains peanuts so right done that let's move on to some history shall we and so i'm going to maybe well I'll, I'll ask you this where do you think originally the chocolate plant the cocoa plant where do you think it comes from originally have a think about that and then what i will say is when i because i made passing reference to this earlier when i went to cadbury world as a kid they had a whole area on the history of chocolate and they actually had very small little cups where you could drink the original recipe of chocolate and i found it really interesting taste even as a child and then as an adult when i was working for the tourist board visit britain and i went back there and as i said it's basically the biggest tourist site in in the center of, of britain england and so yeah i mean of course i was going to go there and basically i noticed they didn't hand out the cups anymore so i asked them well why didn't you do the cups i found that fascinating as a kid and they went we discovered it was pretty much 50 50 50 percent of people found it interesting and finished it and 50 percent of the people were expecting it to be like modern chocolate and basically spat it out all over the floor and left lots of half drunk cups everywhere and so we gave up <laughs> it was just too much hard work so we stopped doing that gem okay fair enough i i, I can see your point so Back to the question I asked earlier, where do you think it comes from originally? And the answer is, it comes from Central America. So, there was something called the Columbian Exchange. I am thinking potentially about doing a whole episode on the Columbian Exchange, but the headlines of it is, it's called the Columbian Exchange because this is when Christopher Columbus moved from Europe to the Americas, and then suddenly after that, it opened up all this trade. And it was the single biggest exchange of flora and fauna, animals and plants between two continents ever in the entire history of planet Earth. 
because suddenly it opened it up and things were exchanged. For example, horses were not a thing in the Americas until the Europeans brought them in. That's an example of something coming from the old world to the new world, if you like. But on the flip side, something like the humble potato comes from South America. No, nothing to do with Ireland, but they started being grown everywhere. And then we get to chocolate. So to give you an idea, what happens is sometimes you dig up a bowl and they're able to do very clever, careful research and analysis on the bowls. And you can get an idea of the elements, the basic residue that's still on it. Not always, but sometimes you get lucky. And so the earliest residue of clearly man-made interaction with the cocoa plant is from about 1500 BC. So in other words, about three and a half thousand years ago, that's when human beings were first starting to work out that these particular seed pods, if you did quite a lot of different things to them, eventually got you something delicious and interesting. Just briefly on that point, I find it amazing when you get something like bread. Bread is one of the constituent meals. There are different types of bread. It could be cornbread, it could be unleavened, it could be leavened. In other words, is it flatbread or does it sort of puff up like, you know, like normal Western loaves, the loaves and things like that. That's to do with having yeast in it, etc. But who looked at a field of basically grass and went, I wonder if we grind up the seeds and then add some water to it and then bake it that that'll be delicious and nutritious. Turns out they were absolutely right. The other one that always amuses me is mushrooms. We now know today that some mushrooms are delicious. Some mushrooms are hallucinogenic and some mushrooms are really poisonous or slightly poisonous. Somebody had to have gone through all that stuff. It's like, you know, you're standing in a forest and there's Ugg over there going, oh, he's going to eat one. He's... He, oh no, he's fallen over dead. Don't, don't eat the ones with a red top on with white dots. Okay, don't eat those. That seems to, dead people, okay? I mean, our ancestors would have had to go through some ridiculous trial and errors with those ones, okay? And pretty much the same with any kind of food. Same thing with the cocoa bean, which is the base product of chocolate. So I mentioned that it was a drink, clearly. Oh, you know, is Jim talking about some lovely type of cocoa? Well, no, not actually. So basically, by the time you get the conquistadors coming into Mexico, by then you get things like the Maya and Aztec civilizations, and they have got a chocolate drink. And the actual Mexica, which is the common language in the Aztec empire, is chocolatl. There's lots of words ending in atl in the Aztec Mexica language, which we get Mexico from, by the way. And that's where we get the word chocolate from. It's literally, it's one of the few words in the English language that's actually directly from a long dead civilization from the Americas rather than from Europe. Okay, so chocolatl was basically a form of ground up and processed chocolate as a drink. It wasn't particularly warm, but this is the thing, chocolate on its own is not sugary. It, it's, it's not sweet in any way. So what they did is they basically flavoured it with chilies. So it's actually spicy. Sipping it is a bit like sipping a kind of spicy soup is the best way to describe it. And cocoa beans, I guess, are a little bit more like a coffee rather than, you know, like I say, tomatoes or something like that before you start thinking of spicy tomato soup. It's chocolate on its own. It's pure form. is actually quite healthy for you. It's got antioxidants in it. And yeah, I mean, basically it counts as one of your five a days. So 
Why doesn't a Mars bar? Because that isn't the way we like to deal with these things. But you could imagine a sort of like slightly spicy, you know, spiced with peppers, with, you know, this kind of bitter flavor. Somebody had to have sat there and went, you yeah, know, yeah, let's give this a go. And so they actually started shipping some of these cocoa beans back to the Iberian Peninsula, you know, Spain and Portugal. And it was there that they started in in Europe they started to add the sugar to, to sort of like make it work for like royal tastes who love loads of things with sugar. That's where they started making what would we now consider more normal chocolate. And indeed, when we talk about dark chocolate, you know, the kind of like 70 percent, it's very bitter. It's very dark. It's sort of even texturally, it is different in your mouth to something like, again, eating a dairy milk or eating a Mars bar or something like that, which obviously has even more sugar with the caramel in the middle of it as well. So the whole thing is trying to overwhelm your senses with sweetness, which is something we tend to like as human beings. So it was basically in Europe where we took a Mesoamerican ingredients and recipe and made it something that today has spread all over the world. I find it interesting, because again, I learned this from Cadbury's, is this is one, unlike Coca-Cola, they actually change the recipe of chocolate when it goes into Asia because it's just naturally hotter in Asia and so if they had the same bar as they made in Britain it would just be mush by the time anybody got it out of the wrapper in again somewhere like Kuala Lumpur. So with that in mind it's sort of changed to adapt to different different markets and different tastes but here's the thing as I said uh, there was some sort of some grim stuff so obviously the secret of chocolate was taken forcibly by these peoples, the Maya and principally the Aztecs. And it has been estimated by some historians that the total amount of dead was about a quarter of a million to get the secret from the Americas to Europe, which is a pretty sobering thing. But I always remember when I told my mother that story, she thought for a moment silently and then said, worth it. Which maybe it is. I don't know. It's given so much joy to people around the world. But here's another interesting thing to do with empire and things like that. Which country do you think is the number one producer of cocoa beans? Now, you might naturally think, well, Jim said sort of like Mesoamerica, so maybe it's Mexico. No, no, not even top five on that one. Number one is Cote d'Ivoire, or the Ivory Coast, as it's known. That's a West African country that, obviously, with the name Cote d'Ivoire, that's obviously used to be a French colony. And number two is Ghana, which is next door, and that used to be in a British colony, again, in West Africa. It's number three. Now, to give you an idea, the Ivory Coast, it's over $3 billion a year. With Ghana, it's about $1.5 billion. So, you know, Ivory Coast is like twice that. And then by comparison, Ecuador is number three. Ecuador, they genuinely are a local bean that would be produced in Ecuador. It's 0.8 of a billion dollars. Now, here's the thing. How on earth did these American beans end up in somewhere like Ghana? And the answer is, basically, the empires of France and Britain recognized that is very similar environment to, like, jungled conditions, and we're not in charge of Mexico or Ecuador. So, okay, why don't we just take some pods, see if they grow there, and it worked really well. So what we've got now is a lingering hangover of imperialism and colonialization. So... You know, if people are sort of saying we need to sort of like wipe away all this influences of empires, do you really think that Ghana is going to just burn all its crops and get rid of a billion and a half dollars of trade aggregates that they're going to get every year? No, it's an example where not everything that empires do are necessarily bad for the local populations. And of course, if 
that's what we did. You know, if we're going to be very thoughtful about these things and the Ivory Coast and Ghana burnt all their crops, well, suddenly the cost of a Mars bar would be like $400 because there just isn't enough chocolate in the world to make all of the chocolate products that we so enjoy all the time. So I don't have a slick answer to any of this stuff, but it just shows you just the humble Snickers bar has all this history behind it. History is literally everywhere, and you might even be consuming a bit of history right now. Another episode coming soon, and as always, thank you very much for listening. <laughs>